Welcome to the First E Podcast, where you can find sermons, messages, encouragement, and hope in a world of uncertainty and fear. May the God of peace fill you with love and hope, and may the hope of God overflow into the world. Good morning. So we've been going through Genesis, and today we're in Genesis 23, the promise of God at work, even in death. So in the first verse of 23, oh, before I start, I I know I'll forget to mention this. So our church has a family camp, and we have reservations still. So currently, you're allowed to camp in Oregon State Parks. We have the reservation. You can call my wife and reserve a spot if you want to. It's different because... They, won't, they don't have showers open there, and uh, for some of you, that's an immediate, ah, no thanks. <laughs> they, what's that? Baby wipes. Baby wipes, there you go, all right. Baby wipes, shower, it's awesome. So, but you know what I mean, you know, camping, one night, no shower, no big deal. Two nights, well, we're getting home pretty soon. Three nights, uh, but, uh, you know, so anyway, I'm just telling you, it, currently we can camp there. If you want to come, you can call my wife and get a spot. If the guidelines change and that closes down, we can all get refunded our money, so don't worry about that. I just thought I'd let you know. All right, Genesis 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. I'm just going to pause there and talk about that phrase, you know, these are the years of the life. If you've ever been to a memorial service for somebody, you know the experience that comes as someone has died and people are talking about their life, you start thinking about your own life, right? What have I done with my life? How have I treated people in my family? How much time do I think I have left? What am I going to do with my life? What is it that's undone or unsaid that I need to do or say? Doesn't your mind go through that when you go to a memorial service? It causes you to reflect on your own mortality and to think about, not that you're going to die the next day, but that thought of what am I doing with the time that I have? And that's a great thought to have. Um, an unexamined life, like if you live your life and you, you never examine your life, that can be a really sad thing. It's good to examine yourself, the things that you're doing and saying, and ask, am I doing and saying things that are meaningful, things that count? Am I connecting with people in my family in a way where they know that they're loved? And it's good to examine our life. And death does that. There's nothing like death to make you think about living. So these were the years of her life, 127. Now, I had an aunt that lived to be 99. And uh, did anybody have a relative that is or, or lived to be pretty old? Yeah. 96? Yeah, Lynn. 103? Daphne? 99? Yeah, so my aunt slowed down when she was 97. She was like Gail Ratliff, if you know Gail Ratliff. Lots of really tiny, fast steps. I could not keep up with her. She took me around the University of Oregon one time where she went to school. I could not keep up with the woman. I think she was 92 at the time. So when she reached 97, she started to slow down. <laughs> so uh, Sarah had a long life and lots of things to look back on. But we're going to move on to verse 2. So verse 2 says this. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arbor, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And so, you know, Abraham's been married to Sarah for a long time, and he's pretty broken up. 
there's two words, mourn and weep. So this is, it's emphasized. He's pretty broken up. And if you've read the Bible, you've, you've seen what grief often looks like in this culture. They would tear clothing, mess up their hair, throw dust on themselves, fast. Um, it says he went in to be with her because her body is laid out in her tent. And some of you have gone to a, a memorial service where you're invited to come and maybe spend time with the body of the person who had lived for a while and say your goodbyes. And that's what's happening here. Sarah is laid out in the tent, and Abraham is mourning and grieving. Because that's our text, I'm going to take the time to uh, share some things on grieving. So, number one, there is no correct way to grieve. Uh, sometimes people think that. If you're grieving, it needs to look like this. There just isn't. For one thing, circumstances can be different. Uh, we have people in our church who have taken care of their spouse for a long period of time, and they are, they are dying, but they are, they are dying not just like in a week, but like for several years. They are on their way to death, and they, they have been taking care of their spouse. That's a different kind of grief. That person has been grieving every day for four years, six years, ten years. That's different than the grief that can hit a person if their spouse died instantly in a car crash. That is a completely different kind of grief. Grief doesn't look the same all the time. And because we're different people, people grieve differently. There is no correct way to grieve. Sometimes people feel bad if they don't cry. There's no rule that says you have to cry. Sometimes people feel like if you're grieving, you have to do this or you have to act this way. Or you, I, there is no rule about grieving. Some people close down and pull into themselves and they just want to be alone. Everybody gets worried about them. It's okay to be worried about people, but I will tell you that some people, that's what they need to do to grieve, is they pull away from everybody and they just go through their thoughts. Other people, they need to talk to everybody. Other people just get angry because grief is such a powerful emotion, it has to go somewhere. And so sometimes people just get mad at everybody and everything. They're, they aren't really angry at you or at the fact that, you know, they, they put Christmas stuff out too early in the stores. <laughs> they're just, they have so much, they're overwhelmed with so much emotion, it just comes out and spills out everywhere. And uh, this can happen especially with kids because children don't know how sometimes to handle the emotions that go with grieving so it can come out in anger they can break things they can yell they can be disobedient and actually what they're doing is grieving but they just don't know how to how to do it time period too there's no um maybe you've gone through grieving and someone has told you the words you should be over it by now and that, that's just an unhelpful thing for somebody to say. It's been a month, it's been half a year, it's been a year, you should be over it now. There is no correct time period for grief. It's not like um, after this time period, you shouldn't think about it anymore, or it should not affect you. It just affects people differently. And it depends on a lot of things. It depends on their relationship, it depends on what's going on in their life, it depends on their personality. You cannot look at somebody and say you're doing it wrong <laughs> with grief. Um, you, it's just not helpful. Now, here is something that is good for you to know, is that you can be grieving and it becomes a problem when your life is stuck and can't move forward. And I don't mean two weeks after your dad died. I mean, six months or a year has gone by and you still are not moving the clothes from the washer to the dryer, and so they got moldy, and so you had to throw them away. And you've gotten to notice that your water bill is due, it's been past due for seven months, and you can't bring yourself to pay the bill. 
It's not because you don't have money, you just can't do the task. If a year has gone by and that's your life, you are, you are stuck. You really need to talk to somebody. Go to a grief share group or talk to a counselor, or talk to your pastor or a friend. You need to talk because you don't have to give up your grieving. You don't have to feel better instantly, but you need to be able to move on with life or it becomes a problem. And um, that is a true thing so that you need to be able to do the things in your life that are important, like, you know, make a sandwich for your child, take them to school on time, these kind of things. Um, but I'm not saying you need to pretend like nothing ever happened. You just need to be able to grieve and start your life again. But even with that, some people can do that after a month, and other people it takes a year. But I think after a year, if it hasn't happened, hopefully someone will help you and your family and intervene, because... You know, after a year, it's time to seek help if you can't get unstuck. All right, I'm talking about that because Abraham is mourning and he's weeping, and the grief is there. We're going to go on, though, because this is another part of death, is the details that come up. So right after somebody dies, there are all these details, and it's often the last thing in the world that you want to deal with. So that's what happens with Abraham. Verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead, and said to the Hittites. So here is Abraham in the tent with Sarah's body. He rises up and he has to go make a real estate deal. This is the last thing that he wants to do, really. And this is what it's like when somebody dies. You, these details come at you. Do they want to be cremated? Do they want a, a full-size coffin? Which coffin do you want to choose? Where are they going to get buried? What date is the service? Have you sent out a notice to the relatives? Have you called the church to see if it's available. It's just this list of details that just inundates you. And as a pastor, I meet with people who've had somebody they love die, and they have to go through all these details, and my heart really grieves for them, because I know as much as they want a song that they love at the service, and as much as they want Uncle Bob to read this poem, and as, you know, as much as they want some pictures, in a sense, the last thing that they want to be doing is talking about PowerPoint and what program their computer uses, and <laughs> and choosing the song. You know what I mean? It's like their, their spouse has just died. They just don't want to talk about all this stuff, but they have to because there's, there's this relentlessness that you have to deal with these things. That's what Abraham is up against. He leaves his wife, goes out of the tent, and now has to figure out where to bury her because that's what it's like when somebody dies. And I, I point that out because Sometimes in the Bible, you read about people like Abraham, and you think, oh, his life is so distant from mine. God talked to him personally, gave him all these amazing promises. I can't relate to that at all. Really? Can you relate to that? Some of you can. This is exactly what you had to do at some point in your life, was exactly that. Leave the body of the person you love and go do details. And so let's look at how this happens. Verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. Is it, it is at the end of a field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. 
And so these are the details that uh, Abraham has to go through to get a place to bury his wife. Now, the Hittites are being very generous. They're saying, you can bury your wife, pick a spot. You can bury her. But Abraham doesn't want just generosity. He wants a little piece of land where he can bury his wife, and then he can be buried and his family. That's what he wants, is a place that belongs to him, so that Sarah's not buried over here, and then later on, maybe he's buried over there, and then, you know what I mean, they, they want a spot. But here's the thing, notice what Abraham has called himself. He is a sojourner, he is a foreigner. Abraham is an immigrant. He doesn't, this is not his country. He's a foreigner. He has no legal right to buy property. Remember in chapter 12, God said, leave your land and go to the place I will show you? That's what he did. He owns nothing in the promised land. He, no, he owns no property. He has no right to own property because he's an immigrant, a resident immigrant. He lives there, but he's not a citizen of the country. And maybe when you've read the story, that hasn't struck you but this is what he's up against. He has to convince someone to sell him land even when he has no right, in a sense, to own land. Or why would they? And here's another interesting thing about this chapter. If you've been sort of like, I don't know, it's been 20 minutes and you're like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to find anything to relate in this, <laughs> this chapter. I think some of you will relate to this point. In this chapter, it doesn't mention God. The closest it comes is they say that Abraham is a prince of God or a mighty prince, but God is not mentioned in this chapter at all. And sometimes this is what it's like when you're facing uh, the death of somebody you love, is that you've never felt as far away from God in your whole life. Now, that's not true of everybody, but for some people, they feel very distant from God, especially when they go out and they have to start taking care of all of these details that are not, they're just, they aren't where your heart is. You can feel like you've been abandoned. Uh, even when you read this passage of Scripture, you might be thinking, why is this real estate deal in here? I mean, I would have much rather if Abraham had written a beautiful poem about how much he loved his wife. That's what I want to read. I don't want to re really read, you know, an escrow thing, you know. And <clears throat> so let's pay attention to this because um, here is a fact that might disturb you. God told Abraham to leave his country and go to the land that he promised him. And he said, I will give this land to you and your descendants. Abraham owns nothing in this place. And at the end of the story, he's going to end up owning this little field that he buys himself. Now, does that sound much like promised land as a gift from God? that he has this one field that he had to buy himself and it was over, or he was overcharged. And this is where we can really, I think, identify with this story is that sometimes we feel in our life that God has said things about himself and us and there are promises in the Bible, but we start to feel like, you know what, anything good that's happened in my life, I did myself. I'm the one who took the classes, passed the tests. I'm the one who got the job. I'm the one who works hard. I'm the one who saved money. That, I have this house because I bought it. I bought these other rental properties and I'm making money on that. And everything I have, I did myself. Actually, I don't know what God did. 
And we can, we can end up in that spot. Abraham very easily could have ended up right there, right? Yep, God gave me this big promise. Hey, all this land is going to be yours. Well, it's not. The only part that I have, I bought myself. So thanks, God, for that gift. Wouldn't it be easy for him to do that? But the key to the story is that he has no right to buy any property. He is a resident immigrant. He is a foreigner. And what he needs to have happen is the people who own the land need to listen to his plea and respond. How much control does he have over that? He can be respectful, and he can present his need, and that's it. Everything else is out of his hands, right? He really needs God to do what he can't do, which is bend the Hittites to say, that sounds good to us, we will sell you this land. And there are so many things in our life that are like that. We look at them and we think, well, that's only there because I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. God actually didn't come through for me. And we totally ignore the thing that happened only because it came from the hand of God. And we don't know how to look and find those things. I went to school, I passed these tests, I got this degree, I got that job, I did it all. Really? God gave you nothing in that. There were no opportunities that opened up for you. There was no gift of learning that God gave you when you were born. There was nothing from the hand of God that provided that. And it's easy as people to ignore what God has done, especially if someone has died and we don't understand why. We become vulnerable to thinking that God doesn't care for us. Why didn't he act this is confusing, I don't understand. And so I think that's why in chapter 23, God is not mentioned. But he is mentioned because the one thing that needs to happen is that Abraham needs them to listen. As a matter of fact, if you go through chapter 23 and underline the words hear, hearing, listen, you will find out they're all over the place. Hear, hearing, listen, listen to me, hear, hear, in the hearing of all, listen, listen, hear, hear, listen, listen. It's like, oh, I see. This is a big theme. Yes, Abraham desperately needed them to listen, and they did, and that's the miracle. Um, and, you know, it might seem so pedestrian, like, well, it seems like such a boring miracle. Yeah, but it was what he needed, and God provided. So, we're going to go on in the story here, chapter, or verse 15, or verse 10, sorry, verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of the people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me, and I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So this is a real estate deal. But it means a great deal to Abraham because this is where he's going to bury his wife. And so he purchases the land. They listen. Ephron listens and sells him the land. Now, he, there's this little phrase, oh, what is 400 shekels between friends? Well, actually, it's a lot. <laughs> so when David buys the piece of land that the temple ends up getting built on, 
and this is a lot later, he paid 50 shekels. So Abraham is paying a lot of money for this field. And actually, sometimes, hey, that's the way life works, right? Hey, you're a foreigner. You're not from here. You don't have the right to buy this, but I'll sell it, and I'll sell it at a higher price. And what does Abraham say? If that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. Here's the money. And so he buys the field. And so this is the little teeny tiny foothold in the promised land of the promise that God gave Abraham, that the whole land from Dan to Beersheba would be his, this little tiny place. And it becomes pretty significant. So Sarah is buried here. Later when Abraham dies, he will be buried there. So I'm going to go over to chapter 25 and talk about Abraham's death, since we're talking about death. (laughs) Um, So in chapter 25, verse 7, it says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. So Abraham was 75 when he came to Canaan, and he lived there 100 years. And in verse 8, it says, Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. And so he had lived a life of faith for many years, but he, he hadn't lived it perfectly, right? Remember? Sometimes he was a liar. Sometimes he didn't believe the promise of God. Sometimes, you know, he, he listened to his, life, his wife when he shouldn't have, and he had to be told to listen to his wife when he may have been tempted not to, and he, he did things that were questionable, and, but he kept coming back to God. He kept putting his faith in God, and um, that's what his life is known as, man of faith, Abraham. And then there's a beautiful thing here, verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. And so when he died, he was buried in the same spot, this piece of land that he had bought. And one of the cool details, it's just a wonderful detail in Scripture, is Ishmael, who had been kicked out of the home with Hagar and had lived separately, he's there for the funeral with his brother Isaac. Because this is one of the things about death, Death kind of levels out things. People and families can have grudges and they can have relationships where they they don't get along. But you know what? If your parent dies and you come to the service, it kind of makes everything else seem smaller. It, It reduces and puts into perspective all these other things. And so here is Ishmael and Isaac burying their dad. And I think that is just, I'm so happy that verse is in there. And I've seen this before, where people who have grudges and have held things against one another, they show up for the wedding. They show up for the funeral. And it's an opportunity to say, you know what, you're my brother, I really love you. It doesn't always happen, but when it happens, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Because death makes you think about your whole life. Everything you've done and what you're going to do. And it kind of puts things into perspective. And it did for Ishmael and Isaac. So another thing that happens is this. Abraham had done some planning ahead of time. He'd bought a burial plot, right? And back up in verse 5, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. He sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east. Well, what's going on here is Abraham has a lot of wealth. And the main thing is going to Isaac, who is the heir. But... Abraham has given each child something. And I just want to talk about this briefly, is the idea of planning is good, it's helpful. 
So Mary and I know where we're going to be buried, unless, you know, I die at sea or something, but I know where the marker will be anyway. So here is a picture of the cemetery in Ukiah, California, Northern California. Small town, 15,000 people. That's Memorial Day. There's some deer running around. It's actually hard to have real flowers in the cemetery because the deer eat them all. <laughs> there it is, Russian um, River Cemetery. It's about one and a half miles from the home I grew up in. So that's where I'll be buried. And this is where my grandfather is buried and my grandmother. And my dad is buried there. And my mom will be buried there when she passes away. And Mary's great-grandmother is buried there. Her grandfather and her grandmother are buried there. Her mom was buried there just before our oldest daughter, Amy, was born 30 years ago. Her dad was just buried there. Her dad just passed away. He's buried there. And her aunt is buried there. People I grew up with in high school are buried there. People who worked at our church are buried there. That's where I'll be buried. And I think what is helpful is that our kids will not have to wrestle through all the questions of this. We have decided that's where we want to be buried, and we'll have a list of details that kind of go with that so that that burden is not on them. We've, and my mom has done the same kind of thing. She's 84 and healthy, but when we visit, she says, now remember, this is the box that has all the papers that you'll need if I die, and here's the plan, and you're the executor, and she has had things repaired around the house, and here's you know, my plot cemetery and all those kind of things. She has that organized, because she doesn't want all that huge weight to just fall on us. And I just wanted to point that out, that that is something Abraham is doing. And with the issue of inheritance, he has divided things out so there's no argument and fighting and animosity. It's all planned. There's, no re there's nothing to fight over. So for some of you who are 12, this is like, who cares about that? But for some of us who are like, you know, 58, like me, it's like, you know, it's helpful to people in the family to have these kinds of things set aside. Now, Let's see, what else was I... Oh, <clears throat> so this event is public. Where does this whole deal go down? Maybe you forgot. The gate of the city. Everything public that's done legally was done at the gate of the city. So it takes place at the gate. It is public in the hearing of all these witnesses, this transfer of property. It's going to be permanent. It is important. Abraham doesn't want just a generous gift. He wants to own the land where his family will be buried. And this is a public statement with witnesses and a description of the property. As a matter of fact, the, the chapter closes. It, it, it's, a, uh, it's like a title company meeting. I, you know, if you look at it in, from verse 17, it's the name of the seller and the name of the buyer and the price of the property and a plot description of the land itself and the names of the witnesses. It's a purchase that's what this is, these verses. If you've ever bought a home, you've, you know that you have to sign your name like, I don't know, 50 times. You, you keep signing, to, you, you don't know what you're signing. And, they, and then they tell you, well, this is what this is. And you're like, I don't know what that is. I just want this process to be done. Have you been through that before? <laughs> Buying a home? And so that's what this is. So here are the verses. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, that's the plot description of the property, was made over to Abraham, he's the buyer, as the possession in the presence of the Hittites, those are the witnesses, before all who were at the city gate, the public nature of it. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place from the Hittites. 
And so, that ends chapter 23. Well, what are some things to take from this? Because, you know, at this point you're thinking, okay, plan ahead, everybody goes through death of somebody, okay, here are some things that are helpful, but what does this have to do with my life <laughs> or, or with faith? Well, let's take a look at this um, in a little more, little more detail. Um, remember that it could seem like God is nowhere to be found. His wife has passed away. He is hoping that these people will listen and sell him property. God is not mentioned in this chapter. It can feel like this in different times in your life. It may be when you go off to college. It might be when a relationship breaks up. It might be when you are fired from your job. You might feel like God is nowhere to be seen. And you might be tempted to think, actually, everything I have is from my own hand. And you need to remember this story, that the one thing Abraham needed to have happen was that they would listen to him. It happened. And that was like a little miracle. And yes, he had to shell out a lot of money for the property, but he got to buy it, which was the point, and bury his wife. Now, this place becomes very significant. Abraham is buried here with his wife, Sarah. Also, his son, Isaac, will be buried here with his wife, Rebekah. Also, their son, Jacob, will be buried here with his wife, Leah. And maybe you've heard that phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three of those gentlemen with their wife are buried there in this one spot. This is a significant place. This little piece of land is the down payment or the first fruit of God's promise for all of the promised land. From Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, God's promised land, this is the little first fruit or down payment, this little grave site. And actually, death is a major theme of Genesis. Genesis begins with what? Creation. So it starts with what? Life or Zoe, right? Zoe means life. It starts with life, Zoe. And so that's what Genesis begins with. Do you know what Genesis ends with? A coffin. That's the ending of Genesis, a coffin. It ends in death. There's death all throughout the entire book. You know why? Because we have a problem. <laughs> Our problem is sin, and the result is death. And God has promised to do something about that. And this little first fruit, part of this plan is that this land is promised, and this little field is, is the down payment or first fruit of that promise. God's promise is that through Abraham's family, the entire world, all nations and all peoples of the whole world will be blessed. And that will happen. I talked about that last week because Abraham had Isaac and then he had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and then through the tribe of Judah is David and then on through his descendants is Jesus. Jesus is an ancestor of Abraham and through Jesus, the entire world is blessed. And you might remember that Jesus sent his disciples. He told his disciples, go, and where were they to go? Ends of the earth. You know why? Because the holy land itself, Israel, the promised land, that itself is just a down payment on what God was going to do. It's just a first fruit. That is not the whole tamale, the promised land. The ends of the earth, the entire thing, all pieces of land, they all belong to God, all of it is the goal. Every people, every tribe, every language, every nation, that's the end goal. This little promised land promise was just a start, which is being fulfilled through Jesus as people worship him all over the world and proclaim his death, 
and his resurrection. That is the nations of the world being blessed. That's God's promise at work. And death cannot stop the working of God's promise. It can't. His own son was killed, right? Put in the tomb. Did that stop the working of the promise? No, because on the third day, what happened? He rose. Yes. So I have a few things to read. I think they're piling up on me, actually. I forget what I've said. When I get to the third service, I don't know what I've told you and not told you. So I haven't read from Hebrews 11, have I? Actually, if you were smart like my children, you would say, yes, you've done that. <laughs> have I ever told you the story? Yes, you have. <laughs> so this is Hebrews talking about faith. Hebrews 11:8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's looking for what God is doing. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many of the stars of heaven and as many and innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. So the book of Hebrews is written long after Abraham and Sarah have been buried. And the author is saying, look, God was good on his promise. Look at all these descendants. God came through on these promises of land and descendants. And then he says, these all died, like Sarah and Abraham, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Abraham was promised this land. He didn't receive it, but he had faith. Having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this is a, a powerful thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying. God was not ashamed that, he, that Abraham died having only owned a burial plot. God knew the plan that he had. The fact that Abraham and Sarah died without the promised land being theirs didn't break the promise. God's promise was still at work in their life. For them personally in their life, it's because the Hittites listened and sold them this land. That was the miracle for them. But this promise wasn't done yet. And what the writer is saying is that God has these things he's doing, and at the time, it might feel like God has abandoned you. So when the person you loved dies, or when you have this illness, or you lose your job, or things don't work out, or you have to declare bankruptcy, it might feel like God has let you down. And what this verse is saying is God is not ashamed to call you his child. God is not ashamed to be called your God. He doesn't let you down. He keeps his promises. The story is just not over yet. It's not done. For one thing, death is not the end, right? For us who believe in Christ, uh, death is not terrifying. Now, I do not mean, I don't mean that if someone you love died, it wouldn't knock your feet out from under you and devastate you. I don't mean that. I don't mean that the idea of dying might really unnerve you. I don't, I don't mean that. Um, but death for a believer is a transition from one thing to a better thing. And it's actually, it's pretty easy to be nervous about transitions anyway, right? 
If you go to a brand new school, if, um, oh, for a lady, if you're going to give birth, you're going to transition from being pregnant to having a, holding a child. That transition can make you super nervous. But death is not terrifying because we follow the one who died and rose again and promised to prepare a place for us. For us, death is a transition into this new life where we live with God forever. forever. So for us as a believer, death holds no terror or despair. And that is an amazing thing about being a follower of Jesus. God, if, if you die suddenly, God's promises to you are not null and void. You've only, you, you are only going to begin seeing them fulfilled in ways you never imagined. And this is the difference between having faith and facing death and having no faith, where death is just the end to a life that has no meaning. That is truly dark. If death is just the end to a life that has no meaning anyway, you can't get much darker than that. That's darkness. But if death is a transition into life forever with God, it's not filled with terror and despair, as nervous as it might make you or as sad as it makes you that the person you loved has, has left. Now, all right, I'm going to read something else. This kind of encouragement is one of the reasons why we read God's Word, to be encouraged by the life of people who have faced death. And I'm going to read from um, book 1776 by David McCullough because it's the 4th of July. Did you guys notice that yesterday? Yes. Kind of hard to ignore, isn't it? <laughs> At our house, the fireworks finally started. I don't mean the cacophony of the war zone fireworks, but actual fireworks stopped a little after two in the morning. Because there's this guy who lives on the back street, I think, who just walked into his garage and it was like, oh yeah, I forgot about these. <laughs> And I, that's the only explanation I have for why somebody would set them off at two in the morning. But um, anyway, so I'm going to read this um, little description of this person who was 16 during the time of uh, the birth of our country. John Greenwood, a fifer, that's a flute player, one of more than 500 fifers and drummers in the army, was 16, but small for his age, and he looked younger. Born and raised in Boston, he had grown up with the Troubles, always close to home. That's the conflict between British soldiers and Bostonians. A young apprentice living in his house had been one of those killed in the Boston Massacre. Thrilled by the sound of the fifes and the drums of the regulars occupying the city, John had somehow acquired an old split fife, upon which, after putting up the crack, he learned to play several tunes before being sent to live with an uncle in Portland, Maine. In May 1775, hearing the news of Lexington and Concord, he set off on foot with little more than the clothes on his back, his fife protruding from his front pocket. All alone, he walked to Boston, 150 miles. Picture yourself 16, walking 150 miles through wilderness from Maine to Boston. Um, stopping at wayside taverns where troops were gathered, he would bring out the fife and play a tune or two. Um, and this is his own words. They used to ask me where I came from and where I was going to. And when I told them I was going to fight for my country, they were astonished that such a little boy and alone should have such courage. Thus, by the help of my fife, I lived, as it were, on what was usually called free quarters upon the entire route. So after reaching the army encampments, he was urged to enlist with the promise of $8 a month. Later, passing through Cambridge, he learned of the battle raging at Bunker Hill, Wounded men were being laid out on the Boston Common. 
Everywhere, the greatest terror and confusion seemed to prevail. The boy started running along the road that led to the battle, past wagons carrying more casualties and wounded men struggling back to Cambridge on foot. Terrified, he wished he had never enlisted. I could positively feel my hair stand on end. Now, you can understand this. I mean, up in Maine, hearing about the beginning of the Revolutionary War, he wanted to be a part of it. He walked all that way, and he's very excited. He's very patriotic. But then as he sees people being carried away from the battlefield with arms cut off and people who are obviously going to die, he's thinking, what have I just done? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be here. This is, I'm scared. That's the effect that death has, doesn't it? It sobers us up, and we, we ask ourselves, is this really worth doing? Well, this is what happens to him. These are his own words. A Negro man, wounded in the back of his neck, passed me, and his collar being open, and he not having anything on except his shirt and trousers, I saw the wound quite plainly and the blood running down his back. I asked him if it hurt him much, as he did not seem to mind it. He said no, that he was only to get a plaster put on it, and he meant to return to the battle. You cannot conceive what encouragement this immediately gave me. I began to feel brave like a soldier from that moment, and never fear never troubled me afterward during the whole war. I want to read that because this young man wanted to go do something important with his life that required bravery, and the thing that encouraged him was the story of someone who had faced danger and was willing to return. That's what he, that's what he needed to hear. And for us, that's why we read the Word of God. We read the Word of God, people who have faced huge difficulties and have found a way to trust God and to keep faith with Him. We read those and, we, and they encourage us. And that's why we need to talk to one another. This is one of the reasons why it's been so hard on us to be separate from each other, even though you can call or do Zoom. Am I allowed to say I hate Zoom now? I just, it's, a, it's a great tool. I hate it now, but... <laughs> But you know what I'm saying. It's not the same as being face-to-face. We need to hear each other's stories. I mean, we need to hear one another say, I lost my job, it was unfair, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I had this goal, it got ruined, I don't know what God is doing. I have this illness, I'm afraid of what's going to happen, if it will take my life. Uh, My loved one just died, my feet are knocked out from under me, I'm having doubts. We need to hear these stories told by each other and then the, I am trying to follow Jesus, I, 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 I'm asking for the faith that I need to go on, I know that God has a plan even though I don't understand it. And those stories that we tell each other give us courage to face what's ahead. Things seem different. And that's why in following Christ, you follow somebody like no other, because he has laid, his, he has laid down his life for you and died but he rose from the dead because he conquered death and sin. What a person to follow, Jesus. That's why following him gives us so much courage. That's why we have communion together. We take communion and we remember what Jesus has done because it gives us courage. He's the one who said he's prepared a place for us and he's looking forward to us coming into his presence after death because death doesn't hold terror for us. Now, I talked about how Abraham buying this little cemetery plot was like a first fruit or a down payment on the whole promised land. Well, here's an interesting thing. For us as believers, it is not a cemetery plot that is our down payment. 
It is an empty tomb. It means the same thing. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah were buried in this cave. And that was the down payment of the promise of God that the land would be their descendants. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, who laid his life down for us, the Son of God, was buried in a tomb, and that tomb is empty. And that is the first fruit, the down payment, on all of us being resurrected and living with God forever. And that's just amazing. In one sense, the place where Jesus was buried was just a little cave out in a town that most of us will never visit, but it is life-changing, earth-shaking, because it's just the start. It's the promise of what God is going to do for believers all over the world. As God continues his plan to draw people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue into his family, and his plan is to prepare a place for them so they can live in his presence forever. And so death cannot destroy the promise of God. At some cases, in some times, death has actually been the thing God has used to assure us of his promises. Well, right now, we're going to um, share communion together. I forgot to warn you at home, if you're watching right now, so <laughs> that we're going to take uh, communion together. So you might scramble and get crackers and juice. Um, but uh, I encourage you to uh, open up your little container here and when we share this simple little meal, we remember that Christ gave his life for us, that we're in his family, that our sins are forgiven, that he rose from the dead, that we have the promise of new life, that we are redeemed, that uh, all of these things are meant in this simple action. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about how you know, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then nobody will. And why bother going to church? You know, our faith is useless. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, we won't either. If, if Jesus is only good for this life here, we're, we're to be pitied. But then Paul says Christ did rise from the dead, and his, his rising was a first fruit of what God was promising. Through one person, sin entered the world, Adam. But through one person, Christ, life has come for us. And so let's share this meal together. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your demonstration of love for us through your son dying on the cross. Uh, we confess our sins to you. We are sinners. We also accept and believe in the offering of your son that he laid down his life for us. We're so thankful for that. Let's take the bread and eat it together. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus also took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, as often as we drink this, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Let's drink together. Father, each of us will face death in some way, death of somebody, a friend or someone we love, our own death. Father, help us to trust you as that happens. Um, help us to grieve openly and not be worried about what people think. 
Help us to weep and mourn as Abraham did. Help us also to know that we weep and mourn not without hope, but with great hope. Help us to remember your son and his death and his resurrection and your promise to us. Father, we trust you even when we don't understand what you're doing in our life. Help us to have faith when we feel we can't have faith. Help us to see your hand at work even when it seems like you're absent. Father, we pray that you would help us in this. And for those in our body who have experienced the death of a loved one recently or they themselves are headed that way because their health is failing, help us to be kind and to listen and to extend love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 